Luke 4 in your Bibles, please. This is a second half of a two-part sermon on Luke 4, 14 to 30. I preached the first half last week. We actually exposited the passage. There we saw Jesus going from synagogue to synagogue, teaching and reading. And he went to the synagogue in Nazareth. And he sat down and they gave him the scroll to read. And he opened to Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61, as we read of it in Luke chapter 4, he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus reads this, which is Isaiah 61, verses 1, and the first half of verse 2. And then he sits down. And we talked about how unique this was, how interesting this is, because if you continue in Isaiah 61 verse 2, you find that the passage continues, that Jesus actually stopped right smack dab in the middle of a thought. The next word in Isaiah 61 is actually and. There's more that Isaiah 61 presents that this Messiah would do. And so Jesus reads this passage. He sits down. Everyone's looking at him and he says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And he goes on to tell them that the prophet's not without honor in their own country. That they would reject him as they rejected Elijah and as they rejected Elisha in the days of the widow of Zarephath. In the days of Naaman the Syrian. And, of course, they were upset at this and they tried to throw him over the cliff that Nazareth was built upon and he slipped from their midst and he went his way. So that's what we learned about last week. And I told you, as we did so, that we were going to, last week, consider the practical applications to that exposition. And this week, we would actually consider some theological applications. So last week, we made these three applications. Number one, we reminded ourselves that Jesus came to heal us spiritually. He came to heal. Secondly... Familiarity can breed faithlessness. These were people that were so familiar with the things of God that when God stood before them, they missed it. And third, God's blessing is always upon those who act in faith and always worth it. As we consider the widow of Zarephath, as we consider Naaman the Syrian, they were Gentiles, but they received God in faith and they were blessed. And we see that all throughout, that whether you're Jew or Gentile, even in the time when the Jews, when God was focusing on the Jews, the Gentiles who would exercise faith would be blessed for their faith. And today we pick up with the theological applications of this passage. We're going to talk about prophetic perspective today and, and what Jesus stopping in the middle of Isaiah 61-2 can teach us about how to interpret prophecy. And the first thing we're going to learn today, it's going to be more of an application-based message. The first thing that we're going to learn today is that Jesus' first advent, His first coming, was to bring salvation, and a salvation accepted primarily by the Gentile world. The nature of Jesus' first advent, the nature of Jesus' second advent, we learn some important things about them through this passage. Jesus read to these Nazarenes, these people from Nazareth, verses 18 and 19, Isaiah 61. And he told them that the purpose of Messiah was to preach the gospel, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance, to recover the sight of the blind, 
and to set at liberty the bruised. But he also made it clear from those illustrations, the widow at Zarephath, name in the Syrian. Remember what Jesus was saying there for those of you who were here last week. He was saying, look, there were a lot of widows for those three and a half years of famine in the days of Elijah. But God did not send... When God wanted His man, His prophet to be sustained, He did not send Elijah to a widow of Israel or even a widow of Judah. He sent Elijah to a widow of Syria, of Phoenicia, of Zarephath. Why? Because the prophet is not without honor except in his own country. God could not find faith enough in the land to sustain His prophet in the time of famine. So He sent His prophet... To the Gentile world to be sustained. Same with name in the Syrian. Jesus said there were many lepers in the time of Elisha in Israel, but none of those lepers were cleansed. Which leper was cleansed? The leper who came to Elisha and said, I believe you're a prophet of God, and listened to the word of God, and responded to the word of God in faith, and he was healed. God didn't cleanse any of those faithless lepers in the land. But a Gentile who had the faith, he cleansed. And so Jesus makes it very clear from those illustrations that as he, declaring himself to be Messiah, is coming with this unique ministry to heal and to to preach the gospel and to deliver and to recover the sight, that the Jews would not receive it. Not because it wasn't offered to them, but because they would not receive it. In fact, Jesus is quite clear that his purpose was to come to the nation of Israel exclusively. He wasn't rejected of the Jews for lack of effort. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, when Jesus sends forth the twelve, it's what we've been studying in Sunday school. Scriptures tell us, these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them saying, go not into any, excuse me, go not into the way of the Gentiles, And in into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's telling these twelve, go exclusively to Israel. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Go to Israel alone. Jesus says, we are putting our effort behind reaching the Jews with the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 24. Excuse me, 15, 21 to 24. Then Jesus went thence and departed unto the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He finds this woman who is beseeching him for her daughter... And he says, I'm not sent to you. I'm sent to the lost sheep of Israel. This is my purpose. Now it's interesting, because after this she says, Yea, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs off of the master's table. And he marvels at her faith, and he heals her daughter. And what's really interesting to me about that, is that verse 21 said that he was in the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite came up to him. The coast between Tyre and Sidon, if you remember from last week, was the region of 
where Zarephath was. Where that widow woman who Elijah went to in the days of the famine was. And she sustained him. And here's a woman from that exact same region between Tyre and Sidon who comes up to him and who has faith sufficient to receive of the Lord a blessing. But his intentions were quite clear. Jesus was sent to Israel. His illustration about the Gentiles receiving the primary blessing of his ministry is not because he didn't offer the kingdom to Israel, but primarily because the people of Israel would not be willing to hear Jesus' message or accept Jesus as their Messiah. And from this, we understand that though his first coming, Jesus' first coming, his first advent, was to bring that salvation and blessing which God had promised to the nation, through their unbelief, they would not be the primary recipients of it. Much to the contrary. The Gentile world had the faith to receive it. Jesus was rejected of the Jews. The Gentile world had the faith to receive it. And so, for the last 2,000 years, since Jesus' first coming, We have seen the church to be primarily Gentile in focus. It has been a primarily Gentile institution with the Jews remaining by and large in their unbelief. Now, in order to be clear, this does not mean that Jews cannot be saved, does it? Any person, regardless of race or creed or color or background or anything, who puts their full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ will be saved. In fact, the early church was built entirely on Jews. Entirely upon those who had come to the city of Jerusalem for Pentecost in order to partake in the observances of the Jewish, of of the Jewish law. Three thousand were added to the church. And it began as a very Jewish institution, but quickly transitioned into a primarily Gentile institution. So the fact that Jesus Christ came to the Jews and was rejected of the Jews did not mean that he didn't genuinely offer them the kingdom and salvation. But even from early on in his ministry, and that's what we find, we're only in Luke chapter 4. And even this early on in his ministry, we see Jesus prophesying that the Jews were going to reject him. Jesus telling them, look, just like Elijah, just like Elisha, you are going to reject my ministry. And that that rejection would lead to a tremendous blessing in the Gentile world, just as it did in the days of Elijah, just as it did in the days of Elisha. And Paul describes this concept very eloquently in Romans 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are a passage of Scripture that that Paul uses to describe the the state of the Jews in this age of the church. Of course, we can't get into all of it today, but in Romans 11, verse 7, he begins saying this. He says, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, But the election, that would be those who have accepted Jesus Christ by grace through faith in the church, have hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So the election of the Jews, those who have accepted him, have obtained it, the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them a spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense, Unto them, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back all way. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? 
God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. So God had ordained this stumbling. God did not make them reject him, but he knew that they would reject him, knowing the choice that the nation would make to, as a nation, reject him as their Messiah. And he did this. He allowed this for the purpose of opening up salvation to the Gentile world through what we call the church. Now, the church doesn't bring salvation. The church is what you enter into when you are saved. This is our season of salvation. This is given to us as the Gentile world by the mercy of God so that the whole world might share in the blessings of God given to Abraham by faith. Now, will some Israelites come to the faith? Absolutely. But there will be no national wholesale turning of Israel to Messiah until Christ's second coming at which point he will be able to fulfill the promises of ruling and reigning over the nation of Israel that he made to them in the Old Testament. But this is my time. This is your time to have our broken hearts healed, to have our captive spirit set free, to be recovered from our blindness, the blindness of our sinful hearts, to to be set at liberty from the abuse of sin. This is my time. This is your time to call the world unto salvation. That has come to the ends of the earth. To declare to the world that they can be free from the bondage of sin. To beg the world to be reconciled to their creator. And so Paul would say, then skipping ahead to verse 25 of Romans 11. He says, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. Don't get puffed up about where you are compared to the Jews. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. God is overflowing in long-suffering, allowing Israel as a nation to remain in blindness, waiting for all those in the Gentile world who are willing to be saved, to be saved. And again, let it be known that each individual in Israel, like anyone else in the world, is able to be saved. Every Jew is able. God has not disabled their ability to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. If they hear the gospel, if they believe it, if they understand Jesus to be their Messiah, then they can be saved just as you and I. But there is a national blindness over the nation for this time to provoke them to jealousy and for the fullness of the Gentile world to come into the church. A blindness on their part for our deliverance. But there is coming a day when the fullness of the Gentiles will come in and where all of this will change. And our passage in Luke 4 makes this clear. Not by explicit statement, but rather by where Jesus stops reading the passage. And this brings us to our second point. So Jesus' first coming, it was to bring salvation. It was rejected of the Jews. It came primarily to the Gentile world. But his second advent, his second coming, will be to bring judgment to the world, the unbelieving world, and salvation, that final promise of salvation, to Israel. I mentioned in part one of the sermon that when Jesus read, he stopped in the middle of a thought. And I brought it up again today. In our Bibles, he literally stopped right in that in the midway point of verse 2. Now, their scrolls didn't have verse numbers. But it would have been obvious to anyone listening that Jesus stopped in the middle of a thought. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he stop in the middle of a sentence and just stop reading right there? Was it intentional? 
absolutely it was intentional. Because this is where the ministry of his first advent, his first coming stopped. And from that point on in the text, that was all about his second coming. And so he stopped at the end of the, the passage, the account of his first coming. And he said, this day is this fulfilled in your ears. He couldn't have said that if he'd have finished verse 2. If he'd have moved on to verse 3, he couldn't have said, this day is this fulfilled. Because that wasn't all going to happen in his first coming. Some of it was going to happen in his second coming. So consider with me, Isaiah 61. We'll first read the part that Jesus read. His first advent. He read this. Verse 1 and 2, the first part of verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So here we have the part that Jesus read in Nazareth. Speaks of His healing, His deliverance, His proclamation of the acceptable year of the Lord. His announcement, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In our King James Bibles, he stopped literally mid-sentence. There's a comma there. And notice what he didn't read. Beginning in the second half of verse 2 and then into verse 3. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. Jesus didn't read that. Jesus did not tell them that on this day, that was going to come to pass. Jesus stopped short of this, because He knew that they were going to reject Him. He came to bring it, He came to proclaim it, but it wasn't time for the day of vengeance. It wasn't time to appoint for those that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes. Here we have evidence of a common way that God gave prophecy in the Old Testament. And we need to understand this. This is why we can confidently say that the church age, that these last 2,000 years was a mystery, was something that the prophets did not understand. They did not anticipate. The Old Testament prophets, they wrote things, but they had no concept of the church. It's called in the scriptures a prophetic mystery. The Old Testament did not anticipate the New Testament church. Did not anticipate this 2,000 year gap between Jesus Christ's coming and thus far 2,000 years and the, the institution of the kingdom of Christ. As we read Isaiah's prophecy, it's given as one coherent event. Verses 1 through 3. An Old Testament believer, even Isaiah as he's writing it, he's seeing it all as one event. An Old Testament reader is seeing it as one event. The people in Nazareth saw it as one event. And they should have, because it was written as one event. But as Jesus reads it, and as the New Testament reveals, between the coming of Messiah to bring healing and preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and the coming of Messiah to bring vengeance and restoration to Zion is, to this day, a gap of 2,000 years of history where Christ's church is ministering in the Gentile world, a time that the Bible calls the age of the Gentiles, with the program that God had chosen to use in Israel, His, his, his program with Israel effectively on hold, on pause. 
as blindness has been given to them, so that the fullness of the Gentiles can come in. But God didn't present it this way in prophecy. He presented all of these activities as one major event, the coming of Messiah, though in fact Messiah would come twice. This is why the nation of Israel was so confused with Jesus' ministry. They had to take it on faith that Jesus was Messiah. And of course, that faith had evidence, right? He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's walking on water. He's multiplying food. They had every reason to believe that what he was saying was true. But he came saying, look, things aren't quite how you think they are. This is why they didn't expect him. This is why they didn't expect him to refuse a political overthrow. Because the prophet that wrote this, Isaiah, anticipated these events seeming to be continuous. And what we have here is a, is a concept of interpretation. A concept of prophetic fulfillment which we need to understand. Perspective and prophecy. And as we consider perspective and prophecy, we need to understand three important things. First, prophets often saw prophetic milestones, and we'll explain all of this. Prophets often saw prophetic milestones in sequential order, though they weren't a direct sequence of events. So they saw event, 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 and they saw them in sequence, but what they didn't see were the gaps in between. Second, oftentimes there are those large gaps of time between these prophetic milestones that are presented in sequence. And then time in prophecy is only essential when it's actually mentioned. If you don't see time mentioned in prophecy, you should probably not impose time into prophecy. Because God has a way of looking at events from like a broad perspective, as if he's seeing it all laying out before him. And he's looking at 2,000 years and he's saying event, 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 event. And so we could think, okay, event, right? This is all going to happen at once. When God says no event, it's all going to happen in order, which is totally different from at once. So let's illustrate it visually. The prophet. When the prophet was writing, if we were considering a top-down view of what the prophet saw, what God told him, he sees three points. He sees three things happening. One event after another. A, B, C. These three things are happening. As he looks at them, he just sees the events. He doesn't see the time. He doesn't see the gaps. He just sees the events. God gives him no perspective on time. Only perspective on sequence. So as the prophet writes, he writes the sequence of these events. And so the reader reads the sequence of events. And again, we impose on those events time where the Bible doesn't give time. So if we look at these events from the top of a timeline, they look like they're happening immediately after another, but if we change the perspective, everything changes. So I I said this was kind of a top view of what the prophet might see. If we go to a side view, what the prophet is seeing is actually like mountaintops. A side view of these events, when we look at them, we'll find that the prophet is seeing these sequential events, but what he is not seeing are the events between them. It's almost as if, uh, growing up in, in Colorado, we would go up to the mountains, and if you stand on top of one mountain, you can see the other mountain peaks, but you can't see the valleys in between them. You see peak, 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 and you know they're individual peaks, and so me, knowing that mountains are 
have valleys between them. I know that there's valleys between them, but I don't see the valleys. The prophet saw the mountain peaks, but he didn't see the valleys in between. He didn't know how big those valleys were. He didn't know how long those valleys would last. All he saw were the mountain peaks. So God gives him the peaks, the major prophetic events, but he doesn't give him how long between those events. He doesn't tell him how much time between A and B, how much time between the preaching of the acceptable year of the Lord and the vengeance of our Lord. Isaiah saw the preaching of the year of the Lord. He saw the vengeance of the Lord and he saw those events one after another. Little did he know that there were 2,000 years between them at least so far. So in the case of Isaiah 63, Isaiah sees these events happening in sequence. No perspective or understanding upon when they're taking place. He sees Messiah preaching the gospel. And he sees judgment and deliverance for Israel. But he doesn't see the church age between them. If we bump this on its side though, this is what Isaiah was looking at. Isaiah was looking at two different comings of Christ. The first one, where he offers healing to the nation of Israel. They reject it. We go into the church age. And on the other end of the church age, the second milestone, which is when Israel receives that healing and God judges the unbelieving world. And that's why Jesus stopped reading in the middle of a thought. Because he wanted to sit down, have them all staring at him, and then say, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He couldn't have said that if he moved on to the next phrase. Now, more than just an indication that Jesus would come twice, this interpretive perspective lends itself to an understanding of God's dealings with Israel. Some weeks ago, we spent time in a message explaining why it is we believe that God has not finished His dealings with Israel. There's many other belief systems that believe Israel's done with, the nation is done with, that the church is Israel now. So, so Israel has no purpose. There's no national redemption coming for them. Uh, and, and this has led to deep amounts of anti-Semitism, particularly in Reformed movements, Catholic movements, and such. Perspective and prophecy is a big reason why we are confident that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. In prophecy, as God wrote to the nation, He made promises. Yes, those promises are spanning two returns. His first one, He came to offer it, they rejected it. But He still came to the literal nation of Israel, did He not? And offered the kingdom. He came to the nation. We already proved that. Jesus Christ said, I am not come but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus Christ told the twelve, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go to the Gentiles, only go to the Jews. Now, if we were considering the concept of the elect, and the church is made up of the elect of every nation all throughout, and the Jews have no special place and no special purpose, then why is Jesus sending his disciples to waste their time with the Jews? instead of going to the true lost sheep of the house of Israel, who would be the church. But he sent them to the Jews because he was making a literal fulfillment of literal prophecy promised to the Jews. The church doesn't even exist yet until Pentecost, and he's out preaching deliverance to the Jews. So if the first half of this prophecy was given to the Jews, 
and literally fulfilled to them the day that Jesus Christ read in Nazareth in Luke 4, Isaiah 61, 1 and first half of 2, then why would not the second half of 2 and 3 be fulfilled to the Jews as well? Doesn't that only make sense? And just because there's a 2,000 year gap between them doesn't mean God can't literally fulfill His promises to the Jewish people. Those prophecies did not anticipate the church age. They were not written to those in the church. They were written to the nation of Israel. So I'd like to solidify this point further with another biblical example, which we'll see the same issue of prophetic perspective come up. And I take you to Israel's 70 weeks, found in Daniel 9. At this point, we're just giving examples. There are three prominent examples of this in Scripture. Isaiah 61, Daniel 9, and Joel 2. I'll briefly discuss Joel 2. I'm going to sit on Daniel 9 for a minute, though. In in Israel's 70 weeks, I don't have time to get into all the nitty-gritty of it. I have preached it when I preached through my series in Daniel, and then I got into the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, and we we did a whole series on the end times. Uh, Almost probably three years ago now. Um, But in Daniel 9, we have a prophecy of 70 prophetic Weeks. Now, when we say a prophetic week, a prophetic week is seven years of time. Uh, and we know that from Revelation. We can prove that at another time. So, 70 weeks, uh, one week being seven years, 70 weeks would be 490 years. 490 years of prophecy given. And God says there are 490 years that are coming for your people. And this is what we read in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The streets will be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, excuse me, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice of the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So we're given a timeline here. A timeline of 70 weeks, 490 prophetic years. And the purpose of these 70 weeks, these 490 years, upon the people, thy people, as Daniel's people, Israel, and upon Thy holy city, Jerusalem, was to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy. That means to finish up all prophecy and to anoint the most holy, to anoint the Messiah, to bring him into his own. Now, this doesn't happen until the kingdom of God comes. That's when all of this is fulfilled and not until that day. So these 490 weeks are going to trace, or years, excuse me, are going to trace us all the way from that point, the point that is spoken, which is the, the time when the commandment goes forth to rebuild the city, to the end of all things. 490 years. 
which is kind of tough because it's been far more than 490 years since that event. Now the prophecy says, so let's explain it. The prophecy says that the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks is 49 years. 62 weeks is 434 years. So this is 69 of the 70 weeks comprised. Is that readable? It's fairly readable. 69 of those 70 weeks, 483 years. Now, why break it up into 7 and 63? We actually don't know from history what event happened at the 7-week point. But there is no doubt about when Messiah was cut off, right? Messiah was cut off when Messiah was crucified. And so we know that from the point that Daniel received this prophecy to the point that Messiah was cut off, and specifically the command to rebuild Jerusalem to when Messiah was cut off would be 400, at least 483 years. Could there have been a gap between the 7 week and the 62 week? There could have been, but we don't really see one as we look at history. But we know when the end of these 69 weeks are. The end of the 69 weeks is when Messiah is cut off. That's what the Bible says. At the end of the 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Messiah had to die. And in Daniel 9, the Bible prophesied that Messiah would die. So, from that point, we, we trace. And when we look into history, Artaxerxes I gave a command to rebuild Jerusalem in 445 BC. Jesus died in 32 AD. Now, in our calendar, that's only 477 years, not 483 years. But there are two instances in Scripture where we understand that prophetic years are not the same length as our Gregorian year. A prophetic year is only 360 days long. If you want proof, you can write down these references. Daniel 12, verse 11, and Revelation 11, verses 2 and 3. We'll show you that a prophetic year is 360 days long. And so if we take a 360-day year, and we count out between March 14th of 445 B.C. and April 6th of 32 A.D., when Jesus is presumed to have been crucified, there's exactly... 173,880 days. You divide that by a 360-day prophetic year and you get 483 years. 483 years between prophetic years, between when Artaxerxes I commands Jerusalem to be rebuilt and 32 AD when Messiah is cut off. 483 years. But notice what comes next. Immediately after the prophecy of Messiah being cut off in Daniel 9.26, we read this in verse 27. And he, uh, well, and it speaks of the, um, in verse 26, it speaks, let me, let me go back to it so you can see. Um, he shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince that shall come. Rome destroyed the city and the sanctuary in 70 AD. In 70 AD. So presumably, 38 years after Jesus Christ is cut off, Rome destroys the city and the sanctuary. This is why we believe that Antichrist will come out of the Western world. Will come out of the system that was instituted by Rome. Because he's the prince that shall come, and the people of the prince that shall come destroyed the city. That was Rome. In 70 AD. 
So the people of the prince that shall come destroy the city. And he, this is the prince that shall come. The prince that shall come is speaking of Antichrist. Again, we can't prove it all today, but it's all in online if you want to hear it. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. If we compare this with the book of Revelation and Ezekiel, we find that Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel for a seven-year span. And in the midst of the week, at the three-and-a-half-year point, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate. He will be called the abomination of desolation because he will desecrate the temple and cause sacrifices to cease. The Jews thought that this had happened during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes in the intertestamental period. One, off the top of my head, I don't remember, 164 perhaps B.C.? I I don't quite remember. My apologies. During the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, he walks into the temple, he sacrifices a pig on the temple, he erects a statue of Zeus in the temple. They call it the abomination of desolation. But when Jesus Christ walks the earth some 200 years later, in Matthew 24, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation sitting in the temple. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. Jesus says it is yet to come. And we have not seen that yet. We have not seen a time where somebody gets into the temple and desecrates it. Why? Because the temple was destroyed. We haven't had a temple in Jerusalem since 70 AD. And it certainly didn't happen between 32 AD and 70 AD. And so we're still waiting for this prince that shall come to make a covenant with Israel for one week, that's seven years. And then in the middle of that week, at the three and a half year point, to desecrate the temple and to erect himself as God in it. And then he says... For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation, until everything is finished. Remember the consummation, that's one of the things that these these 70 weeks are are going to, to accomplish. And that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. So what we find is that this final week, the 70th week, the last seven years, is a time where Antichrist will make a agreement with Israel. He will abrogate that agreement halfway through. He will he will de- desolate the temple, which will have to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And all of that is happening in the 70th week. But what do we know? We know that that has not happened yet. That certainly didn't happen in the seven years after Jesus died on the cross. So there is a gap here between the 69th and 70th weeks. Remember the purpose of this prophecy. We say, is the Bible wrong? Was this prophecy wrong? The first 483 years were literally fulfilled to the literal nation of Israel, and then this last seven just didn't happen? Was it wrong? Well, remember, this was given a prophecy of Daniel's people in regard to Daniel's city, thy holy city, thy people, Daniel's people, the Jews, Thy holy city, Jerusalem, speaking of the physical nation of Israel. And it was done to finish the transgressions, to to consummate all things. So if we truly do believe that, that this was Israel's program, that God put Israel's program on hold when Messiah got cut off, well then what we find is that if Jesus died and God divinely transitioned His program away from Israel and Jerusalem, and unto the Gentile world and the church, then this final week of God's dealing with Israel, these final seven years, has yet to be fulfilled. 
perspective and prophecy. Daniel saw these 70 weeks, these 490 years as sequential, but there is a gap of at least 2,000 years thus far between the 69th and the 70th week. This is the only way that we can understand these 70 weeks. Unless we try to spiritualize the 70th week. And if we spiritualize the 70th week, why didn't, why weren't the first 69 weeks spiritualized? How were those literal, fulfilled to a literal nation, and then the 70th week all of a sudden becomes spiritual and allegorical? Consequently, this is one of the strongest supporting arguments combined with the other scriptural evidence for why the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation. Since the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 are directed explicitly towards Israel and the Jewish people and Jerusalem, there's every reason to believe that the nation of Israel still has a place in God's plan. The nation was the focus of the first 483 years. Why wouldn't the nation be the focus of the final seven years? Furthermore, since the initiation of the church took place after the end of the 69 weeks, but before the 70th week, it would be completely sensical, interpretively, to understand that God's program with the church would end prior to His recommencing of the program with Israel. And finally, we see that these seven years are going to bring about God's judgment upon the unbelievers and God's salvation to the Jews. Bringing an end of all the things that God had promised for the Jewish people. God's church stands completely outside of this purpose, the purpose for the tribulation. God does not need to chasten His church back to Himself, right? Because the church is already God's in Christ. The church is spotless. We don't need to be chastened back to God. We stand before God holy and unblameable and unreprovable. So why would we have to go through the time of chastening? And we don't have to go through the time of judgment. God is judging the unbelieving world. We're believers. So if we don't need to be judged and we don't need to be chastened, why do we need to be there? But who does need to be judged? The unbelieving world. Who does need to be chastened? Israel, back to God. The 70th week for Israel, just like the first 69 weeks were for Israel. Daniel's people and Daniel's city. What we find then is that prophetically and theologically, understanding perspective in prophecy not only gives us insight into God's plan through Daniel 9, but it lends us aid in our interpretive understanding of why the church will be removed, in, in why we believe what we believe about the church, about the rapture, about the tribulation, about what it's for, about what, what why it's there, about when it's going to happen, about how it's going to happen. So if we plug Daniel 9 into our visual representation, Daniel sees these 70 weeks in sequence. He sees the 69 weeks, the 70th week. Technically, we could put 7, 63, and 1. Um, but, um, I can say 7, 62, and 1, excuse me. Right? Yes. Uh, but, I didn't have enough room. So, 69 and 1. From our side view, however, we see the 69 weeks of Daniel until the time that Messiah is cut off. And then that final week when the prince that shall come will desolate the temple, will set himself up, will make this this um, 
this covenant with Israel for, for seven years, we see that it hasn't happened yet. There's a 2,000 year gap thus far between the 69 weeks and the 70th week. And again, I told you that there was one more example in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. I'd like to inspect it. We won't this morning. Just briefly, Peter quotes Joel 2.28 in his Pentecost sermon, right after Pentecost. He quotes, your young man will dream dreams, your, your old men will see visions. The, the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. However, Peter stops short, again, of quoting the entire passage. Joel's prophecy, following what Peter speaks of, talks about the heavens and earth uh, seeing wonders about blood and fire and pillars of spoke, the sun turning into darkness, the moon turning into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And at that time, Joel states, Jerusalem will be delivered and the remnant of Israel. Now, those final events are tribulation events. They're actually what happens at the opening of the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. So Peter stops short in his quoting of Joel 2, and he gives only the first Advent information. And he, he, he stops in the middle of a thought, because the second half of that thought is after the church age. So in Joel, the Spirit would be poured out, Joel 2, 28 and 29, signs and wonders in the heaven, Joel 2, 30 and 32. Joel sees it all as one sequential event. Uh, I'm sorry, that still says Daniel there, but it's Joel. Uh, but when we see it now, through Pentecost and through completed revelation, we recognize the Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, as Joel 2, 28 and 29 promised. Now there's been 2,000 years of the church age. And then in Joel 2, 30 to 32, the signs and wonders, the moon, the, the sun darkened, the moon turned to blood, everything that the sixth seal promises, that will happen during the tribulation. Christ's second coming. So it gives us three examples now of, of perspective in prophecy, of places where we see a gap was completed revelation that the Old Testament would never have anticipated a gap. Lending more weight to our dispensational perspective, which believes that the church and Israel are distinct. Lending weight to the, our understanding of the rapture. Lending weight to God's purposes and plan. And I wanted you to see this this morning and understand this. Because we, we hear what Jesus reads, and it's interesting, and he sits down, and there's so much interesting th stuff to think about just in the reality of Jesus reading this about himself, saying, I am the fulfillment of this, of this scripture, uh, talking to them about their unbelief, about the Gentile world, about the widow of Zarephath, about Naaman the Syrian, all that incredible uh, information, and, and we could very easily miss this. That Jesus stopped short of the whole of the prophecy. And when we link it with Daniel 9 and with Joel 2, we see a trend that the church age was a mystery. The Old Testament saints did not anticipate it. Old Testament scripture did not anticipate it. And when we're looking in prophecy, we need to think about that and understand that some of the things can be fulfilled early. Jesus' first advent. Others in his second. And we gain perspective from it. So, where do we go with this this morning? 
informational message, more of a lecture. But may I encourage you, don't be numbered among the faithless. Jesus presented himself as Messiah to these people. And he told them, I am Messiah, but some of what you expect is coming the second time around. I'm here to give you enough to recognize I am he. But if you're expecting it all to be fulfilled your way, your timing, your understanding, you're going to be disappointed. And indeed, that's why the Jews rejected him. Because they would not regard a man who was willing to fulfill the first part of Isaiah 61, but not finish the job the first time around. But not come with vengeance. They weren't interested in 2,000 years of mercy for the Gentile world. They wanted what was coming to them. And they were numbered among the faithless. Let us not be the same. It's good to know what is ahead. But our responsibility is to take what God has told us and to believe it. To live in the here and to live in the now. It's our privilege to recognize what God has done, what He is doing, what He will do. But it's our responsibility to take what we understand and to live it out. This, All this academic stuff is great. But at the beginning of this sermon, I gave you some practical applications. Those which I gave you last week. Remember that this is our time. This is our time to preach the gospel. This is our time to be recipients of the gospel. Be warned that familiarity can breed faithlessness. That we can become those who we feel like we've got God put into our box. And we understand how He works. And we understand prophecy. And we understand this. And we understand that. And so we've got our little box. And when something falls outside of our box, we say, God can't do that. And we don't understand, so we reject. And we need to remember that what Jesus was doing that day in Nazareth was presenting Himself in a way they didn't expect and asking for their faith. He'd he'd done miracles in Galilee. He had proven Himself. He was asking for their faith to close the gap. May we not be numbered among the faithless. May we be willing to step out in faith, seeing all of these fantastic things that God has done. Thousands of years of prophecy already fulfilled. May we not stumble at the last step. Simply allow that to be God's business. Understand it as best we can. And serve Him through it. Let's close in prayer.